Okay, we're don't on. Touch, don't touch any cord. Stop touching it. All right, should we get into the AI talk? This is going to be an AI podcast, isn't it? Yes. I didn't think yes. we were doing AI this week. No, no I know. everything is AI. You know that there's like approximately 2,000 AI tools, newsletters. Have you seen all these thread guys about AI on Twitter? Yeah, I like those. Do you? Mm-hmm. Some They're of those guys are great. When they do the thread and they show all the tools, there's some cool stuff there. So you like them? I don't have a strong feeling about them, but there's some useful information if that's what you're asking. I guess I, I don't like, like the I feel like this genre. podcast is off to a bit of a rocky start. <laughs> okay, whatever. I didn't think we were talking about AI today. I thought I was mentally prepared for this. What are we talking about today? Well, you wrote this big post about AI. I felt that that's where we were going to dive in some of these topics and give folks more things to worry about. Hmm. Someone's bumping the moderator out of the way. I'm fine no, with that. Brian, you, you lead the way. You got it. You got it, Brian. Okay, what did you say again? Let me say what you said. No, no. You say what you said. Welcome to People vs. Algorithms, a conversation about patterns in media, technology, and culture. I'm Brian Morrissey. I write the Rebooting newsletter and host the Rebooting Show podcast. Each week, I'm joined by longtime media executive and investor Troy Young, writer of the People vs. Algorithms newsletter, and Alex Schleifer, former head of design at Airbnb and founder of Universal Entities. The webpage has long been the atomic unit of the internet. For publishers, the webpage is what they made. Even as user patterns shifted to make the homepage less important, the side doors of search and social distribution funneled ultimately to the page. It was on the page that publishers delivered their content, established their brands, and yes, made most of their money. The page, however, is long out of date. Web 2.0 saw an influx of the use of Ajax and other tech to gussy up web pages to make them less static. An unfortunate phase was kicked off by the New York Times' Snowfall, which Alex hates, by the way. And it saw publishers try to make their pages more immersive. It ended up just making them more clunky and unintuitive. The distributed media craze saw publishers try to skip the page altogether and go find audiences directly on platforms or fish where the fish are, as publishers like to say at the time. The page was always trying to solve for so many challenges that it became so loaded down with ad tech pixels and unnecessary friction that for time, both Google and Facebook forced publishers to create stripped down versions of their pages for users delivered from those platforms. For all its shortcomings, the page has been good to publishers, a reliable workhorse that not only created immediate value, but served as digital publishing's own windowing strategy. I mean, after all, with evergreen content, think about service content that answers the questions people type into search engines. Publishers could wring long-term value out of pages. Now, news pages tend to have a spike in value immediately when the news is new and then fall off a cliff. But a page that has evergreen content combined with search distribution enabled publishers to build new business lines entirely with affiliate commerce. As Google eliminated all credible competition, search became a mostly reliable distribution channel. The bargain was always for publishers to play by Google's rules, then make money from ads that very often ran through Google's ad stack and let them wet their beak. It was a roundabout way of paying tribute to the king. I mean, nobody likes taxes, but if someone controls the distribution, you pay up. That's breaking. 
Google's demo of its new AI-fueled search engine heralds a new phase of search that will throw the page's central role in publishing strategies into question. For all its innovation, the search experience isn't all that radically different from the 10 blue links of the early 2000s. We're still scrolling through a bunch of links, clicking, hitting the back button, and then repeating the process. ChatGPT and Microsoft's moves to integrate AI into Bing is forcing Google to dance and publishers are left in the lurch with the ramifications to their beloved web pages. Some of the issue is simply real estate. Search has not been a winner-takes-all game. There are clear winners, yes, but being on page two could still notch some pretty good traffic, and publishers could always find pockets where they could compete. Most publishers see up to half their traffic coming from search. For all the talk of return of the homepage, search has long driven far more visitors. From Google's demos, what's clear is less traffic will go to publishers, and the visitors that do arrive at publisher sites will expect different, more dynamic experiences than the current static pages cluttered with overlapping displays play ads, autoplay videos, please to sign up for newsletters, or to register, subscribe, or even to allow desktop notifications. I was just meeting with a publishing executive who remarked that he didn't know anyone who would ever want a desktop notification, at least intentionally. Publishing always has a racket. So this week, we discussed the future of the page, among other topics, at a time of great change in the media experience. The idea that I had was around sort of the end of the page view. I must admit, I did not watch the Google presentation because I was attending the Omida OX6 conference in Chicago, which was an amazing <laughs> But I'm, um, I'm actually flying to, to Europe tomorrow night to talk about AI. Oh, there you go. We can preview your, your discussion. Yeah. It's fine. It's, it's a topic du jour. And what are we going to do? Have Ben Smith on? I mean, whatever. <laughs> I think you wrote about it and it was very helpful to frame it because I saw a couple of screen grabs from it and I was like, I've seen enough. Now, this is a real estate game and there's less real estate that's going to publishers and they're going to get boned. Google has been the backbone of the internet and it's been mostly a benevolent dictator. Just to jump in on where I think Brian's going, there's a lot of discussion and maybe we need to continue it around how changes to the search engine results page real estate's gonna affect so, so many people. But I think the more productive conversation is speculating on where it goes and how we need to prepare for that. Yes, yeah. I agree with that. And maybe a framing here is that where Google goes, the internet goes. I think one of my predictions was that Google was going to be the loser this year and Microsoft was going to be the winner. And we saw a little bit of that. But after Google I.O., and I know you've missed it, Brian, but Google I.O. basically showed everyone and, and the market responded to it positively that Google's got so much surface area that they can just slap AI into everything and it'll become the de facto standard. Also, they productize well. They Although do. I will say... It's, and, it's not as good I as ChatGPT still, though. No, it's not even close. Bard is not even. But it doesn't close. have to and, be. And I, and I actually feel like I'm. It doesn't have to be, but it hallucinates wildly. It's actually. Okay, let's get to that later. But really, like, I, we're going to end up in this like weenie thing. Like, it's not a, a totally accurate, which is fine. It's going to get more accurate. Uh, I think here's what I happens. Think it's a material. I think it is a material difference. There are certain things where you don't need to get perfect results, but I think AI needs to get past a certain threshold for it to become truly useful and adopted. A little bit like maps needed to get. If maps yeah. kept, if every fifth time maps sent you completely in the wrong direction, you wouldn't use Google Maps. And I think that's what I'm noticing with Bard. Maybe it's the queries that I put, but it's full on. You, it's full, full on, on wrong, of, Alex. Full on wrong. It's, yeah, yeah. He, here's the thing. So if you're just looking for basic sort of Wikipedia general information, it's pretty useful. If you want up to date information, because it's connected to the search index, 
context, it's really useful. There's a bunch of other data sets that are connected to it, which make it more useful than OpenAI. But just to give you a simple example, if you go in and you start looking for specific references from authors on things they've said or things they've written, it will make egregious errors around who said and who wrote what. I, for example, was just looking at, there was an interesting thing about the middle role that needs to get played in organizations as AI evolves. So someone who can connect data scientists or the engineering organization with the creative organization, this kind of middle role. And there's a whole book written about it or largely about it. I was looking for the author of that book and Bard Flatow gave me Andrew Nigg, who's the founder of DeepMind, as the author author of that concept, and it's not him at all. OpenAI was way, way, way more accurate. So, so there's a big difference. And what I don't understand is why, well, why and how, lo- how, how long it will take to, to close I think the a gap. lot of, <laughs> it's unclear if anyone knows why, because it seems to me every time somebody gets asked how this stuff works, people say, well, I don't know. But to me, it actually, and we'll bring it back to the topic, just to caveat everything is that while Google had an impressive presentation, it felt a little vapor-weary. There was a lot of it's coming soon or it's coming here. And there were a lot of kind of project names bandied about. I couldn't tell you that there was like a pretty cohesive vision of it. The main thing that they have is if they add AI to Gmail, more people will use it. But yeah, Bard is, I can see why they were worried to release it. And this could be dangerous for them because outside of the example you gave in Troy, my example was much simpler. I said, give me events happening in this region between this date and that date. It was June 10th and 15th. And it found something that when I double checked is a winter event. It's a winter celebration. Nothing to do with summer. And that to me is like pretty basic Google shit that it should be able to do. So let's caveat everything we're going to talk about is that Google is not out of the, you know. Okay. So wait, are you saying like the spaceship was over the White House, but it's actually somewhere in like Northern Virginia? Let me be clear. I think GPT-4 is still like, I have experiences with chat GPT-4 that are transcendental. I cannot understand how the computer is responding in a way that is so uncanny and so specific about stuff that are very loose topics while I can make Bard kind of make mistakes pretty much constantly. So this shit's still happening. God knows what Google has in their back pocket. But all I'm saying is these models are not perfect, especially Google's as we're seeing. All of the models are incredibly expensive to run. They might not be able to turn them on to the extent that they might want to at the scale that they might want to. And some of this stuff might take a while, right? It could be could be that we hey. have a last mile problem with AI. Hey, Alex, my suspicion is this. The concept that I was looking for was very specific. It was called the missing middle. I clarify what I said a minute ago. And it was about people that can navigate the connections between humans and machines. It strikes me as a very important concept as companies figure out the role that little robots play next to human beings. Mm -hmm. And that's everything from prompt writing to data enablement, all that stuff. Very important. Now, I suspect that where BARD is breaking is the connection between the AI model, which is now called Palm 2, Mm -hmm. and the search index. And so when it's making these seemingly seamless connections between current information represented in the search index and the AI model, it's associating the wrong information with stuff that's coming up in the model. Right. So my suspicion is they'll work it out in the next 
little bit. I think Brian's right that the convenience of having it integrated into Docs, which is how I'm using it, you literally ask a question inside of Google Docs, will trump model performance. Sure. Yeah, but I'm also interested in, in what is the brand I think what you're getting at was like why Google was reticent to release it. And it's a brand issue. Google is a trusted brand. If you look at the most trusted brands around, Google's at the top, it's two or three or something like that. And OpenAI coming out with this thing, it's like, okay, whatever, it's a test. You got to register and all this. But Google has like one of the most trusted brands out there. And so what I wonder is, I assume that that is going to improve. Like I just assume it is going to, and it's going to get more accurate. But does it end up having a brand problem in that you sort of think about not trusting AI answers and becomes like almost like a joke. Oh, this must be AI because it's inaccurate. The issue to me with a lot of this AI stuff is are regular human beings outside of Silicon Valley going to trust this stuff? A hundred percent. I think you if, know it, what I, if it's chat hey, GPT levels, if it can give good enough answers most of the time around most of these simple queries, people will a hundred percent trust it because today they trust a lot of pretty terrible information on the internet. So I would say that it's likely that they will, but it can't get pretty basic stuff wrong like it does today. If it works like ChatGPT4, yes, or even 3.5. If it works like Bard today, no. Yeah. Because that yeah. It, that yeah. will become a meme. It'll become a meme. Like it'll be all But isn't that always the way like Snapchat was sexting meme? Twitter was what did I have for lunch meme? It all starts with that. I just think it's a different area because it's going to be used for more important stuff than these other silly social media hey, tools. Brian, I, I found I experienced the trust breakdown firsthand this week. Mm -hmm. And the way I would describe it is I have a way of finding finding information via the search bar where I type in a broad query and I start to refine it. And the trust signals I'm getting are from who published something. They're from media brands or human brands largely. And it's sort of like you have this sense as to whether information is legitimate if you know how to use Google on the internet and you're critical about information sources. What I found is I had to move between BARD and OpenAI to go back to the internet because I didn't know if I could trust the models. Because I had an old way of validating information and it didn't apply to the new way. And I think that's why media brands are important. And I think that's why the clever integration of citations into chat models is going to be really important. Because you can't just have a blob of text from the AI and just trust it. You can't. And I don't think you will be able to for a while. And so people will for basic things to, that are inconsequential. How do I make popcorn in the microwave yeah. or whatever? Yeah, exactly. But I think for more important and more current information, you're going to be looking for indicators. Or complex jobs to do. I think it's absolute magic when you tell it to figure out the quickest flight to a destination if it works. But when it doesn't work, it's absolute trash. So s some of these things are going to be pretty important to get right. You know how I realized how serious the race is, though, this week? I just want to add this. I read this quote from Alex Karp, who's the CEO of Palantir. And the quote was, you have a technology that will allow you to outproduce, change the margin of your company, understand your business, blah, blah, blah. It finishes with, this is so obviously dominant that adversaries quiver and scurry away instead of attacking us or our allies. 
followed by a video of a Palantir-powered war simulation where the operator, this is serious, this is a very, very important video in my mind. The operator is asking for up-to-date satellite information about troop movements and then sending drones in to get more information and do worse. And so it literally was like a war simulation inside of a chat interface that showed you how AI was going to manifest as a tool for war. And you realize pretty immediately that that's, if not coming very quickly, already here. And the idea that you don't have AI to support the military is like not having munitions. It's like incomprehensible. It's very important. I'm not saying it ought to be important. It just is. And so if you watch this, I think you would find it really staggering. We can throw it in the show notes. But AI has already become absolutely material to planning military campaigns. Okay. So on the one hand, it can't get basic stuff correct. And on the other hand, it's like changing warfare. Yeah. Yes. I hope it doesn't bomb us by accident. Well, let's do it. <laughs> let's look at it this way. If we're talking about media, some of the things that we're going to have to start looking at as media creators is actually how quickly Google can change and how quickly the interaction models change and the behaviors change around that. And what I noticed kind of underlying this Google I.O. presentation is that while AI, I have not lost any faith in AI. The more I use GPT-4, the more we get access to APIs, the more I see stuff like that Palantir stuff, it's earth shattering and culture changing. But if we're looking at the next three years, it is actually really important to kind of dissect this Google I.O. presentation and look at how much a lot of this stuff does feel like not rushed in, but I can understand why they were worried about integrating this stuff into their product. Because if Google loses that authority on delivering good answers, then they lose a lot of value there. And I think as, as media companies, how do you work around that? And how do you look at Google's evolution over the next year and adapt to it? Because, hey, there's not like, what do you do on the internet? It still is a world where what do you do in Google's internet? They yeah. control Chrome, they control the search engine, they control Gmail. I mean, even if you have a newsletter, you're running through Google, believe it or not, right? You, you still have the gatekeeper. Yeah. Isn't so near-term opportunity then for publishers? Because one of the biggest challenges for publishers is lack of trust on the internet. People just don't trust stuff on the internet. And they never really have talking about this in their text chain. I put like the trust with different news brands and it's all the digital brands are all the, all clustered at the bottom and all the traditional brands. And some of them that people like to mock, like Forbes, Forbes is way more trustworthy. And by the way, Forbes is valued at 800 billion, about 10 Buzzfeeds right now. 800 million. Million. What's that? Million. million. 800 million. Yeah, Elliot, we're, we're talking money. we're talking media money here, not tech money. No, I know. Did I say billion? <laughs> yes. What? <laughs> I just put in like billion, million. Wouldn't there be like a new an opportunity for publishers to use this to regain some trust? Be like, look at this stuff. It's not trustworthy at all. Dangerous game. It's a dangerous game. What do you think, Troy? I think that media brands, if nothing else, have become a light signature for trust. That's why they're used for product recommendation. That's why the ones that haven't been able to make money in content and traditional media monetization, some of them, like Forbes, have thrived in the affiliate game. I think that those brands, while not huge businesses, and when I say those brands, many of them were either newspaper or magazine brands, have stood the test of time as things indelibly printed in the minds of consumers that they feel like they can rely on. The real legacy of magazine media, and I think newspaper media, is 
that they are valid sources of information and trusted sources of information. Mm. So yeah, I think that can that show up in new ways? It has already shown up in lots of new ways. Forbes tells you to buy a certain insurance product or a VPN or a payroll service. I think that they'll show up in similar ways as validators of information in chatbots because I think that Google and OpenAI are seen not as information authorities, but as technology companies. Yeah. You wrote a little bit about SKUs trumping pages. Do you want to explain that a little bit? I got a little lost in that section. I got to be honest with you. Well, information collapses in the AI funnel, right? So if I write something about organizational change in AIs and I get a result that's delivered back to me by OpenAI, it's mushed together in the chatbot's presentation of information to me. And a SKU is a entry in a database of a product and the associated metadata. And that product could be a bicycle, it could be a mattress, it could be a lawyer in your neighborhood, it could be a flight, or it could be a hotel room. And what we saw in the Google demonstration, and it's kind of obvious, I suppose, there was a good how to buy the right bike use case that they showed on stage at I.O. And what you see is it's the merge of chat and Google Shopping. And inside of Google Shopping, what you see are all of the SKUs. The SKUs are a picture of a bike, the description of that bike, and where you can get it. So all the picture and all the metadata, who, who has it. And that's a huge, important type of information to a consumer on the internet. Anybody looking for a thing or planning travel is ultimately looking for the SKU. In a chat response, SKUs don't get demolished. They're indivisible. So if you had, say, a database of all the senior care providers in America, or if you had a database of all the divorce attorneys in America, those would get surfaced in the search results in a way that was extremely valuable to the holder of that database. Anybody that has discrete pieces of data or information that survive the chat experience can monetize those in all kinds of ways. That's why I say the SKU is more important than the page. Okay, but if I have that database of, what did you say, senior care providers, why would I want to give access to that to these models? Like, why would I not want to close that because off? Because you would, you would include a link with it that would take you to your page and you would monetize that lead. Because just like if you were selling a bike, that presumably would go back to your product catalog or your product listing and you would make money off its sale. You're further down the funnel. You own that data and you therefore control that okay. purchase. Just problem. so long as they have to come through to the site. I remember like covering Kayak in the early days and a lot of people were like, you're not getting access to all of this information. No. Remember like when we had before Uber used like all its VC money to try to put taxis out of business in the name of the sharing economy or whatever nonsense that was going on then is you would have upstreaming. And to me, the internet is a bunch of upstreaming and upstreaming for anyone who hasn't been upstreamed in New York is when you're trying to get a cab and someone just walks up like a half block or a block and takes the cab coming down 6th Avenue before hmm, it gets I didn't to know that was an official term for that. That's upstreaming? annoying. Mm -hmm. Come on, you are. That's old school, right? We don't have taxis in Rajana. When was the last time Troy took a cab? Your driver has been upstream before. Yeah. Sure, Troy. Stop it. <laughs> 
Actually, he's a driver. He has some other executive went for (laughs) walked up the road and you guys are getting boring. You know, I mean, (laughs) it's just like it's just so boring. Hey, but you know what? If you don't provide value in that middle air like kayak, then all the airline companies will be the place that receive that link and they'll go direct effectively. But I suspect there'll still be layers in between the airline and the chatbot that provide comparison services. Just like today, if you go use OpenAI, there's a plugin from Expedia, there's a plugin from Kayak, and they provide comparative mm-hmm. travel services in there. I hope you're with me now. If I feel sort of inadequate, like you're still not with me on this. Just like the week before, you didn't understand my two by two. <laughs> Maybe that's my own limitations. I don't know. But Troy, if you have that data, what is the value of that data once it gets ingested? You're talking about data that is potentially more readily available. Don't you need some type of unique component to that skew that makes you the, the Gathering, source valuable? organizing, standardizing, sorting, comparing data from all of the senior care facilities across the country is part of the value. And, maintaining, and if you can right? do that, yeah. And if you can steer the presentation of that into the next step that organize it into a form so the consumer can get contacted by all the senior care facilities in Chapel Hill, North Carolina or someplace, you're creating a lot of value. And all of those leads that go to the end user are worth thousands of dollars. So Mm -hmm. there's still a huge amount of value there. And my point more broadly is what data can you own and how does that differentiate you in a world where AI endlessly compacts information and takes all the value out of it from its creator? It's a kind of compression machine that's just stealing all of the content. So how do you survive? Isn't this just an acceleration of scraping? I mean, so much of the wealth of the internet has been just scraping other people's information. Because why create stuff yourself when you can just take other people's? I suppose. I think that's an acceptable analogy. Nice one. So why allow it? If you have this valuable data set, we have a long history of a lot of technology companies scraping data that they didn't create and they did nothing to create, but they've just gone in and in some ways, oh, because you didn't put robots.txt, they were like, oh, well, we can come in and take your stuff. And guess who's going to get rich? Not you, us. Why go down that road again? I mean, I sort of understand. I don't know if it's possible, but why even play that game? Why feed these models? Well, a lot of people are asking the same questions. So people that hold the keys to vast repositories of information like a Reddit or a Quora are saying, hey, there's going to be a toll gate here. So a lot of people are trying to avoid that mistake. Others are in this weird position where they at least want some promise of traffic via a citation or a link or something and are going to open themselves up to some kind of aggregation. Now, how that plays out, who knows? I think as an organization that owns kind of these skews, these pieces of data, you have to do a lot of soul searching and really try to understand how valuable that data is in this new world. A lot of companies I've talked to often overrepresent the value of their data or how unique it is. And I think in a world of AI, there's a fundamental change in the way, just the value of organization, because I can send an AI model 
and there wouldn't be even Google doing it. I, as a competitor, could send an AI model to look through a bunch of disorganized information and organize it. So all the kind of labor that was put in in organizing and tagging stuff can be bypassed. So all of a sudden, if all you're offering is something that's better cataloged than somebody else, it's not as valuable. Now, if you're Reddit or Quora, the great thing is that you have a constantly updating set of data that has live information being added. But if you're a list of doctors and your main value is that you've organized it well, that's all stuff that can potentially yeah. be. So so I would say really try to see how defensible your data is because it's even yeah. if Google doesn't steal it, somebody else will figure it out. But to be clear, it's also your brand. And these models, just to circle back, are going to have a trust issue. And so they're going to glom off of established brands. Like your example, listofdoctors.com, if they have a set of data that is a list of doctors, it's not going to be as valuable as mayoclinic.com. It's not. Right. And so to prepare the brand point, if the list of senior care facilities isn't just a generic list, but it's also a ranking of them by any dimension, quality of care, expense, etc., then that's your data. And that has tremendous value even inside of a new interface. See, I think what's going to happen too is everybody is going to deploy open source models to organize data on their sites, just as if it was underlying the internet like a chip or any foundational technology. And so you're going to see chat everywhere. You're going to see chat augment user experiences at the page level everywhere. The generalized kind of broader chat that is OpenAI or BARD, there will only be a couple of those generalists that wins. There's a law there that power consolidates to a few players. And I think that that's no different than it was with search. You've done a lot of media, right? And the atomic unit for most digital publishing is the web page. And so I'm like very yes. prosaic and I'm very interested in the future of the web page because it is the foundational element of just about all digital publishing. And I think at this point, it's again, it's an acceleration. We've already seen it with everything is going towards video and the web page itself, because I'm thinking about like the messenger started today and mm. it's such an old school model. It's so page centric. And can you go over what that I, is? Page and video player centric, Brian. Interestingly, yeah. it's kind of using the AOL put a video player on every page kind of model of old. Yeah. What is the messenger? It's a new straight down the middle media property from nonpartisan. It's a nonpartisan because oh, yeah. we need a news, a new news property out there. And both sides.com? Yeah, pretty much. With a heavy dose of New York Post. Let's give them a chance. Let's let's give them a chance. Well, I mean, chance. first of all, this website this is a piece of shit. <laughs> okay, Alex is not giving them a chance. I'm not, I'm not going to visit this. Jesus Christ. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> They're going to put that on the movie poster. Okay. <laughs> My friends designed that, okay? Uh, well, oh, they really? Did, really? I think it's V.9. And you're still friends? Clients get the work that they ask for. It all comes back to the brief. If you were building a publishing company now, would you start with the web page? In all seriousness, like I just, it, it doesn't seem like you would. What would you start with, email? I honestly, I don't know. I think email to me is just, Come on, the least you've got a media worst. brand called the rebooting, which is about sustainable publishing. Yeah. What and are we doing the, next? It's the least worst alternative. Well, the question and is, what is the most defensible at the moment, right? And maybe it takes you a hundred times longer to build an audience on newsletter or a podcast 
but it's also maybe f the least disruptable by AI right now. Because honestly, I wouldn't know what else to do. And I would recommend, hey, build a Discord community, send a newsletter, build a podcast, do all of these things which are kind of out of the purview of what's happening on the web, because the web is going to be a bloodbath. What Google didn't talk about at Google I.O. was, hey, this web that you're searching is going to be 99% generated by AI, feeding AI itself. Like, how, how is that going to work? The, yeah. the web might collapse. If I just hired 20 people, that's not where I'd put my money, man. Because like, would you start a website, Troy? A website, listen, this all goes back to, this is why it's Alex's point is apropos. A page is a page. A page is an email. A page is a two-by-two two artifact that is just a repository for information. What matters isn't the page. What matters is where the distribution comes from. And so the page is a convenient and open way of presenting information that's indexed by Google, and that's where the distribution comes from, or some other referrer of traffic. But everybody is now much smaller than search. So I would, yes, I would, but I wouldn't make it the center. I think what has to be the center of your media brand is the quality of the ideas and the representation of those and the voice and the brand and everything that goes along with it. I think then quickly you say, well, how are we going to maximize distribution around that? If Google to web pages is one part of it, the first thing I would do is I would say, how am I optimizing my content for the next generation of search? And that's what I was trying to get at with my newsletter this week. Like, how do we think differently about content that matters? That's the point of the skew conversation. And it may also change the nature of content that ultimately gets listed at the top of the new chat page. These are very, by the way, to the audience, these are very dense conversations that benefit from visualization. But I would also say, yeah, I would start a podcast. But the thing I would be most obsessed with is, do I have anything unique to contribute to the fucking world? Is what I'm doing of right, but, interest but, to the people? I mean, every media person thinks that. Let's say they all wake up in the morning thinking that. Okay, is the case. but there's good and ones and like, bad ones. Okay, and then they make a, a website. Hey, breaking news, guys! You don't deserve to have a media company just because yeah. you want one. You gotta well, earn it. Everyone says that, but then they write the like fifteenth article that's the exact same out there, and they change. Well, then don't overcapitalize your business and don't do all that. Right? Like, I, that's not my plan. I can't get any smaller, Troy. <laughs> <laughs> I could shrink myself. Um, only 5'9". I guess do something good, right? But I think what a lot of media creators are, are facing now is that like, yeah, we, we want to do good things, but there's no way to make money and sustain it. And there's this tidal wave that's about to hit us. And we feel like we might have put all our chips on black in the casino on the ship and the ship's about to tip over. So who cares? And to me, it's like, I wouldn't invest in a website now. I can't tell people where this stuff's going. Like I said, I think it's going to be a bloodbath. And if you're a little media company in the middle of that bloodbath, you're finished. But Trent, think about the SEO. I mean, let's just talk about the here and now. This thing, there's less real estate, right? There's going to be less traffic that is going to get pushed to publisher websites. And you know that SEO is the lifeblood. It's very profitable. It is a very profitable operation. Everyone has an SEO chop shop in the back that is optimizing. And that's why the search results in part are such a mess. And that's the opening for this stuff is because everyone's playing the same game with trying to get to the top. What Forbes is doing with Forbes Advisor is not unique. Everyone is doing it. They might be doing it better, but everyone is doing it. And that's because it works. And that's because it's extremely profitable. And it subsidizes a lot of stuff that frankly isn't that profitable. 
I mean, I look at the messenger when they came out, they have nothing but programmatic ads on their Trump interview and like USB backpack ads too. You think and, they would have at least got my pillow to advertise? Exactly. Someone. Have you seen Temu, by the way? That's the new, put that in the show notes. They've got some really funky ads that are everywhere now. It's like some sort of Alibaba kind of thing. I really feel like we're desperately as an industry, as individuals on this podcast, certainly in my own mind, we want an easy answer to it. And if you go through the list of things, you realize that the distribution potential is limited, the monetization potential is limited, or they are platforms that are much better suited to individuals. So you look and you say, we're going to create a podcast-based media company. You're like, oh shit, well, that's going to take you a long time and it's hard to monetize. We're going to do a text-based media company. Well, that's not going to work very well. And then you would say, well, we're going to base our media company as, say, John Battelle did, as a Twitter distributed short video news thingy. And you're like, oh shit, but is Twitter going to let my ads on there? And then you're like, no, we're going to do TikTok. We're just going to do news on TikTok. You're like, shit, I don't have an ad product and people don't want to hear from institutional media brands on TikTok. I'm going through the list is my point. <laughs> and then you go and you're Ben Smith and you say, after I get done every podcast in the country, I'm going to come back to the office and we'll write newsletters. And then we're going to do events. We like events and we like newsletters. And I say, great, I like your newsletter too. It's terrific. Except you better not take too much money because it's going to be a small company. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where we're at. And then I love this, the messenger thing, because they're like so old school. They're like, we're opening up a slice joint and we're going to sell the best pepperoni slices because no one makes them right. They're all too fancy now. They're going to do and skins. So, they're definitely you know, skins. So what are they doing? They're doing fast pages, programmatic advertising, lots of content. They're going to wrestle for what's already proven in the market. And at the same time, they're hoping that so many people atrophy that they can kind of find a place in the old distribution paradigm. And it might just work. Who knows? Yeah, it might. I mean, like there's a new pizza place opening near me and there's 90 pizza places near me. And I was like, really? I'm like, that is really optimistic to open up a new pizza place when there's 90 within five blocks. You know what I see a lot of People is always open pizza places. I guess that's my point. And they'll also open up newfangled smoke shops that sell Zins. <laughs> and amazing. they sell weed. There's so many of them. Oh, that was another. By the way, Zins are like a moral panic in the Chicago suburbs. My sister, what? who I told about this podcast, said, Gene, I hope you're listening because I told you about it. I'm doing one-to-one. -one Hi, Gene. Thanks for listening. <laughs> and Don't she let told your kids about, do zins. No, some kid like that, maybe it was one of my nephews. Anyway, they, they got into some dad's zins and they were like hopped up on zins. <laughs> I had no idea. My kid tried to spit his use zin out the other day and it landed on my arm. <laughs> See, this is all new to me. I don't have kids, so I don't know about this these is... different like moral panics that are going on. Then your kids do zins, Alex? No, not yet. Not yet. I don't even know what a Zin looks like, to be honest. I just imagine. Is it like it skull? Not, not as messy. Like little tea bags? What is it? Yeah, this like little skull used to come in those little things. But do you have to spit? There it is. No, no spitting required. I guess that's the big innovation because I think that was the big problem with smokeless tobacco. I was actually going to ask you about this. I collect these now, Alex. I have a garbage pail full of empty ones. Great. Zin containers. Zin. I was going to make art with them. I see. You should go. You should just chew tobacco. I roll a shilling for like I feel, a different I type I really. 
really feel like should we bring it back to OX6? No, I really want to bring it back to the web page okay. because I want to I want to talk about search is going to change. There'll still be links there. There'll be fewer of them. How you get in is going to change. So search engine optimization becomes something new. Let's call it chatbot optimization. Don't know what it looks like yet exactly. We're seeing glimmers of it from IO and from citations in Bing, etc. The second thing is having a data strategy, some type of data asset or unique content asset that doesn't get destroyed in the sort of chat extraction process, I think will be important. What that means, how that looks, not sure. Beyond that, I think that web pages, and this is where I wanted to get Alex's take, because Alex is a kind of application thinker. I think that what you're seeing now is a new level of interactivity on web pages. And what's going to happen is every sales funnel, just like we're seeing on the search page, web pages are going to be AI assisted. So they're going to be more interactive. We're going to see a change to the fabric of web pages. I've been calling them smart pages for lack of a better term, TM. It's a very throwback term. Yeah, smart pages. Out. Sounds like something MSN would come out with. MSN yeah. smart pages. They might have actually. I haven't. Checked what does that like mean? Really, the web page is not that different. And I feel like it's been in decline for a long time. At the same time, it's really the same. Fine, we moved from a right rail. A lot of places just have basically a single column, and they're integrating the ads slightly different. But we're still just hitting a back button all the time, and I can't see that being the case in five years. So what is a what are you seeing? Page? I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but I can't imagine if you're making a web page mostly because of distribution. The distribution requires you to make a web page. The distribution and the monetization require that. Okay. It just does. The reason that I haven't built a website is because I don't need it. It is not helped. I don't see like an upside to having well, a website right now with the pain in the ass of making one. I made okay, websites so before. Okay, so I'm not going to be able to satisfy you as to why you do or do not make a web page because you used to do it for reasons that were related to distribution. You created web pages because you hoped someone would find them and it was a useful way to present information to a search query or a social referral. Mm -hmm. Now I'm saying that the fabric of web pages may change. So let's take two examples and you react to these. One of them is any purchase funnel. So you're looking for a bike, a car, an insurance policy, whatever. And now behind that web page is a smart robot. And so you're frustrated because you can't compare hotel rooms in Alex's earlier example, or you can't compare different models of the same car. You ask a question and it answers your question and it modifies presentation of information. So suddenly the information on the page is dynamic. It's presented to what you're asking and who they know you are. And it's searching through a bunch of information behind the web page to customize it in a way that makes it simpler and easier for you. In a media use case, which is, I think, maybe what you're interested in more, you see a whole bunch of different things, some superficial, some not. What does that mean, some superficial, some not? You would say, summarize this page, compare this point of view to another point of view, give me a quiz on this content, help me find more sources that right. dimensionalize the idea. So all of the things that you might do on your own to expand knowledge in and around that page of information can happen on that page now. So a web page becomes more dimensionalized. 
And I think that you're going to see a lot more of that. We could have done that before in a back and forth between a database, your personal profile and the presentation layer of a web page. But now it's getting easier and so much more powerful because every web page can have a brain now. Right. And that brain can make the page more useful to you. So I think that's where it's going. The page itself doesn't disappear. It just well, I becomes guess more nothing useful. Nothing ever disappears. I guess my point is like the existing web page paradigm, in some ways, it's already been on its last legs. And isn't it ironic though that we're getting more news web pages, websites being launched in the last year that I've seen <laughs> in the last decade? I mean, the Messenger is the latest one, Semaphore, Puck, all these things. We've seen new web, web pages launch. And so maybe people are seeing something we're not. I'm interested in that. I agree with Brian. I don't think the web page paradigms like works long term. I just can't imagine in a world where you get your answers instantaneously that people are going to be hitting back buttons. I just don't, I don't see it. Can you pause, please? I can't hear you now. Can you say something, guys? Yes. Troy, will you come to my dinner in Cannes? He doesn't hear you. Or he doesn't want to come. Because he refuses to use wired headphones. Always wired. Wire, Always hardwired. Wire. Okay, I'm back. Okay, perfect. Hi. Okay, so I was going on about these this notion of web pages, and I was really looking forward to Alex's thoughts on it because he's a yeah. designer of these things. Alex, are you long on web pages? I'm trying to understand what the mode is for people. And, you know, people have some jobs to do or tasks that they want to do specifically on search where they're looking for something specific. And we can already see how search can bypass the site when you ask for like an actor's age or somebody's net worth or pretty basic information that Google will surface. You know, it'll link the website there, but nobody will go to that site. I feel that there's these two competing things happening, which is where do people put their stuff and then how do people access it? But I get a sense that what's going to become more and more important outside of the unique skew or the unique data that you can feed into an engine is identity. And it's like the website maybe becomes a place where you tell the people about who you are and your message. Maybe you collect all the things that you've written across the disparate places where you post them. And identity is going to become really important and developing kind of your own personal brand and the brand of your media company is going to become really important. And I don't know where the identity lives. If as a like somebody in the workforce or looking for work, your identity lives on LinkedIn. With family, your identity used to live on Facebook or Instagram or something like that. And as you build a media company, you're dispersing on Substack and maybe a Discord channel and maybe you have stuff on Reddit. But where does your like core identity live? When you bump into somebody at a conference and you tell them where to go, do you pick one of these things or do you send them to your own website trying to control that? And I think the website still might have a place for that. Is Google going to send a lot of traffic to websites? I don't think so. I don't think citations will make a difference. I think people are not going to click on any of those citations. They're not going to give a shit. Vast majority of content that people want from Google searches, which is the vast majority of the way people spend time on the internet, is just getting an it's answer to something. It's a super, super interesting question because I get the sense that not only does Google feel a kind of moral responsibility to preserve the viability of the ecosystem around it. But obviously, it goes without saying that those clicks are their money. Well, they're monetizing on the other side of the click. I mean, that's been the sort of bargain. It's like Google's going to send you traffic. And then guess what? The ads on there are served by Google. Like Google controls the ecosystem. And that's the reality. And it's been fine. It's worked. And now Google is forced to quote unquote dance. 
And so they need to, again, quote unquote, disrupt themselves. And that breaks the sort of system that has existed for going on, what, well, 25 years. Yeah. And the only, another mental kind of model to consider is the app store. So if pages become more functional, if the kind of model shifts from being just about content pages that are absorbed by the center to things that accomplish tasks or help you do something with the support of AI, then Google becomes the center of a world of applications. Yeah. But wouldn't it be better if instead of this weird system where you're sort of being indirectly taxed by Google. No one likes the word tax, but it's the reality. Like Google levies a tax on pretty much every business on the internet, just the same way that Apple, I think more straightforwardly, has a tax on everyone who operates in the app store. Publishers should basically, it should be reversed, that they should get paid in order to contribute to these models because their work is being scraped. Well, that's a really good on. point, Brian, because if you thought that this thing could get turned upside down, and you thought that more and more of the mon listen, if you have an omniscient chatbot at the center of the world that controls so much economic flow, then that is the source of a huge amount of value and you should pay people that support that model. So it kind of turns it around and says suppliers to the center will yeah. get paid is really what you're saying. UBI the other thing that I think publishers. It's just so hard to administer when, when there's such a power imbalance. Mm -hmm. I know. One thing that bears mentioning is that just like skews are harder to break apart in chat, video is too. Video is like a skew in that it's indivisible. You, you don't absorb it into the text chat like you do an article. I think in this whole kind of conundrum that we've been talking about, video just becomes more and more important. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's you would not to. start with a web page. A web page is text. You might have proprietary players on there. Like, I don't know if anyone's basing their video strategy around a Brightcove player, but <laughs> no offense, Brightcove, in case you want to sponsor, get in touch. Brightcove Bright is Cove, still right? around? Oh, God. That's that not joke will never get old. Yeah. Maybe that's a good thread, which is the core kind of media format that you start with probably shouldn't be text. <laughs> oh, shit. Alex, that's what I do. I know. And I keep telling you guys, the ability for text to get like chomped up and just... Wait, did he tell us that? I, I didn't I hear that. I either missed I the part. The part of me being doomed, I sort of missed that. <laughs> we uh, oh, the, pa the part that you are you write for a living, that yeah. that, that, that we, is no value? Can we double click on Look, that? Write for a living but then output it as you reading it out to the world and making it more about personality. I think that it's probably more defensible. I'm not saying nobody should write, but it's probably more defensible to start with a, with a piece of media like audio or video because people will want to consume it like that rather than starting with text as your kind of high value piece of content. And video is a great version of that. Audio is a great version of that. Live community, live chat, live text. Like I wanted us to cover Google I.O. in some sort of live conversation. Maybe we can use something like a Substack post or whatever they call it to cover this stuff live and try to create yeah. things that are like just more defensible, especially if you're a small media company and you've got to pick bets, you can't do everything. I think creating a website and putting all your shit on it is dangerous because you neither can just turn off Google and say, don't send your bots this way because that's a suicide. And you also know that nobody's going to visit it. Nobody's going to visit the website. I'm going to use a sports thing. You've never seen the Manning cast, I assume. ESPN, the football broadcast, it's like terrible. And so they decided to make like a secondary feed where the Manning brothers who were former football players, and they, they have good personalities, I think. 
relatively speaking. But they bring on like other players and other people and they have a conversation about the game while the game is going on, just like normal people would have. And some of it's about the game, but it's not like the normal. I think that would be cool to do with with live events like IO. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think just to try to mess with the format and make the format in itself valuable means that it can't be absorbed by Google and exported in a way that feels like... I don't know if I kind of subscribe to Troy's concept of the SKU being so valuable. Very few companies have valuable SKUs that are maintained and up-to-date enough. I think it's going to be very hard for most companies. Most companies sell some sort of punditry, some sort of commentary on what's happening during the day. It used to be enough that you had like distribution and money to do it more than others. But AI is going to flatten all that out and anybody with an opinion will be sucked into that data set. So I think SKUs are defensible for some, but I think for most, that's not going to be the way to do it. Meanwhile, I'm looking at a universe that's bigger than media, Alex, but I do understand your comment. But I, I think meanwhile, there's, again, there's no shortage of content monetized in all kinds of ways. One, one of the things that I've noticed is, for me, writing the newsletter was sort of therapeutic and something that I felt like I wanted to do personally, just as part of my own journey. But I would say that it's monetized. It's monetized, even though I don't have a paywall, I don't charge subscription, but I get a lot of economic opportunities because of the stuff I write. There are all kinds of ways that media gets monetized that isn't banners. Right. Yeah. To me, it's like, this is a great accelerant for a lot of things. And one is indirect monetization. Media is a great front end to different businesses. Media as a standalone business, eh, never been really that great. But it's great for getting attention. It's great for building authority in different areas. And you can make money in different ways. Just directly exposing the audience to ads or to getting them to pay. It's really not that great of a business. There are exceptions, but it's not. Yeah. And you can sort of see what's happened here and that the IAB, for example, is not spending any time creating frameworks for new types of page-based advertising. What they're spending time on is like the new fronts for podcasts, for video, for gaming advertisers. In many respects, the thing that they were founded on is kind of in the rearview mirror now. Like that whole world that we grew up in, which was ad servers and banners and all of that stuff is really sort of marginal. The universal ad package, seminal moment, new standards. That's what helped a big part of the growth was standardizing to whatever the five different formats. Yeah. RIP. Let's get into good product. All right. We could do hot Cheeto burrito. I got a good product for you. Maybe it's something different. I got a good product. Maybe we can do set this one up as a quiz. What do you guys think? Yes. Let's okay. do it. Quiz. Oh, quiz night. I'm holding it in my hand. I don't believe you can see it. Zin. It's believed to have originated in China during the Tang Dynasty in the ninth century, which many things were. Opium? No. Tea? It moved from China to the Middle East, which, and then ultimately to Europe. The French were very material in popularizing and standardizing the, the structure of this set of things, and they established suits for them. Mahjong? It's probably the most flexible and most played... Oh, playing cards. Yes, game of all time. I'll just build on it a little bit. It kind of was revolutionized with printing because they had to be made by hand before that. 
And there was a brief time because they were associated with gambling where they were taxed in the in England. Playing cards were taxed, leading people to reuse old decks or create homemade ones. Yeah. Originally, hearts represented the church, spades, the military, clubs, which were originally clovers, represented agriculture, and diamonds, the merchant class. That's you, Alex. Oh, wow. 52 cards represents 52 weeks. Four suits represents Are you four reading seasons. ChatGPT? No, but I did do a little ChatGPT research, <laughs> as you so. can tell. And the most important games, my favorite card game is Cribbage. Cribbage. It's cards on a board. Anyway, I, look, I have a deck of cards here from the great hotel in the desert in California. Have you ever been there? 29 Palms in Joshua Tree. No, I, I like buying cards when I go to funky little places and hotels. Cards are cool. I love Texas Hold'em. Cards were also Nintendo's claim to fame. They were the first Japanese manufacturer of high-quality plastic cards before mm. they launched a Nintendo. They're having a pretty good week because they just launched. It's going to be the biggest game of the year, Zelda. This I'm going to wait till the New York Times tells me about it. But yes. Oh, my God. Don't get them riled up about Zelda. And it is such a cultural phenomenon, guys. That game is, is insane. What is wrong with it? I still don't understand what your problem is with I, I saw something. I was going to put it in, but I thought you might like explode. It's something else about Zelda in the New York Times. <laughs> something less immersive, but still like about the legacy of Zelda. It's fine. It's for a general audience. No, that's fine. I got to tell you i feel like i want to get it alex i want to play it yeah it's great but i always feel like that when video games come out i want to play them and then i don't ever get around to it <laughs> what do you got brian cheetos in a hot dog no, that's, what, is it? That's all. what do you mean like i don't i like i'm not a i'm not a cards guy i mean i used to collect baseball cards but i don't like cards games and i think poker is douchey no offense to texas hold'em i just think you like, know what there's i love just playing too many people get into poker and a certain type of people play poker not all poker have players. you ever sat yeah, down with your players. with friends and played a game of hearts you ever played hearts brian yeah sure it's fun yeah i don't mind it you know you're at a cabin or something like that i, I wouldn't do it like on a tuesday night in new york no you want to come over thursday play cards yeah no <laughs> not really one thing, one, th one last thing, I, I don't know if we can end on this, but I was a little shaken last night, guys, by that article in the New York Times about the succession last night was off the charts. Good. I haven't seen it. So. What, a, what a brilliant, brilliant episode. Not only were there amazing zingers, but just the momentum in the episode. It was an election episode, Alex, so good. Uh, yeah. Anyway, what I was shaken by is, and Alex, you remember some of this, but we built a company around the notion of independent voices being important to media. And as such, we either bought their media companies. An example would be like Read Write Web or Dogster or Remodelista. This was, the company was called Say Media. I was the president of it. Or we partnered with them to help monetize. And the most important kind of North Star at the time in the mommy blogging world was Deuce. And it was an incredibly important and influential kind of blog. And she was a gifted writer and kind of laid it all out for everybody. Her depression, her struggles as, as a mother, trouble with alcohol, all kinds of stuff. And I found out last night that she passed away, that she committed suicide. I didn't know that, but it just kind of brought back that kind of a bunch of memories from that time, which was a wonderful time was when I met Alex, but the same media building that company and the first generation of kind of independent media on the internet, which was really blogging. Yeah. Mm. The first influencers. 
And then, Brian, you made a comment that you thought that in some ways that we would see a lot more of that kind of personal struggles with people that kind of set their lives up to be influential media creators on social media. I think we've seen some of it already, but... Yeah. I don't mean to draw like a direct line, but I mean, everything, I I didn't know Heather Armstrong at all, but everything I read about it, I think a lot of the stuff of independent creators is overblown from that aspect. At first, I like rolled my eyes at a lot of the mental health stuff, but it's super stressful, I think, for for people to have their lives be monetized in that way. Because you have strangers who come and say terrible things about you like all the time. It's like nobody feels sorry for like celebrities because it's like, oh, they're rich or something like this. Man, it would suck. I think there's a reason that Ben Affleck like looks depressed every time like paparazzis are like swarming around him. I would too. Let him smoke a cigarette. Yeah. And I think normal people our quote-unquote normal people are, are getting pulled into that world and we see like in the current online world it's it's pretty vicious and some people take it to heart a lot of this anti-journalist or tech that's why like i'm sort of on the side is very few people have other people who come and tell them they're idiots or they're unethical and they're liars and they're scum and for some reason if you're <laughs> if you're like a reporter now this is a regular thing and that sucks like nobody, other jobs, you don't have that exactly. I mean, it is mm-hmm. it is a good point. And we were talking about how important it was to build your own personal brand and your media brand being the individual. That comes with a price. There's something nice about writing for The Economist and not being written up, right? Just getting paid and moving on with your life. I think yeah. it's something I, I even think about making this podcast. Do I want the attention? I think the best people, the people are behind the scenes <laughs> don't get mixed up with that. They don't even know, like people don't even know about them. You know, like when there's like billionaires that pop up, you're like, I never even heard of this yeah, person. Yeah, it's the best. That person is doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. a sad loss. Anyway, we feel for Heather's yeah. family and her children. And, yeah. 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 Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode. I feel like I need to come clean on the podcast. It's been a pretty stressful podcast because I'm managing a situation. And Alex, I see his poor. I think you brought a bucket in, Alex, didn't you? Alex's kid is next to a bucket on the floor. (laughs) Yeah, that is what's happening here. All right. Well, on that note, thanks, folks. Let's let's maybe wrap it up here. Thank you, guys. Thanks. All right. I appreciate your understanding with everything going on.